Acts chapter 9, verse 1 to 19, is about Saul. And um, of course, you guys know there was once a man named Saul. He, um, Saul was from a first century city called Tarsus. Um, back then, being a native of this city was about as awesome as being from a city like Boston or London or Washington DC because Tarsus was an intellectual city. Um, Saul later changed his name to Paul and Paul is a towering figure of the Christian faith because he um, is known for his commitment to the fame of Jesus but we know that Saul wasn't always a proponent of the gospel. In fact, for a long time, he opposed the gospel. He was violently against anyone and everything um, that was about the fame and renown of Jesus Christ. And uh, on today's episode from Acts, this is what we're going to find out. We're going to find out how Saul, who persecuted the church, and became a passionate follower of Jesus and arguably one of the most towering figures um, of our Christian faith. And so from his conversion story, from his testimonial, how he got saved, we'll see the need for us as believers in the 21st century to rediscover the joy of salvation before we dive into Saul's conversion story, we have to remember that we've already been introduced to him in Acts. If you remember just two chapters back in Acts chapter 7, we met Saul for the, for the first time. He was one of several onlookers as Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, was being stoned to death. Um, Saul played a part in Stephen's execution by holding the cloaks or the outer garments for the executors um, that were stoning Stephen and he also approved of Stephen's death. And if you also remember, immediately after Stephen's death, there was an outbreak of persecution against the church in Jerusalem. It was one of the most volatile periods of persecution the church has ever faced. And Saul played a major role in this next level attack on the church. Acts 8 tells us that he was ravaging the church. Saul was ravaging the church. This basically means that like a wild animal tearing their prey into pieces, Saul was going from house to house seeking to tear the church apart. Saul terrorized the church. And that was the last we heard of him before Philip and his ministry in Samaria took center stage in Acts. And in the last two weeks, we've been looking at how God used Philip in amazing and mighty ways in Samaria. That has been our focus. And as you know, Philip played a major role in taking the gospel to Samaria and beyond. Saul, even though um, we didn't hear anything about him, 
he continued to persecute the church in Jerusalem. How do we know that? We know that because of verse 1 and 2. Let's read verse 1 and 2. Um, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so Saul was fierce, fear, um, was so fiercely against Christianity, he was willing to go anywhere and do anything to exterminate this movement of Jesus followers. And so what does he do? Um, he When he heard that a large group of Christians had fled from Jerusalem to Damascus to escape persecution, he was determined to go there. And so what does he do? He requests a legal document from the authorities giving him permission to raid the city of Damascus um, for Christians. And so his intentions were straightforward. He wanted to go to Damascus. He wanted to find anyone who belongs to the way who belongs to the way that was a commonly used term for Christians in those days. And what did he want to do with Christians? He wanted to arrest them and return them back to Jerusalem for punishment. Now, a bit of geography for you guys. Damascus was located about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. So Paul is in Jerusalem at the, at the, at the moment. Um, Damascus was a large city um, located in a lush green area. Orientals used to call Damascus paradise on earth. Um, there was a, a sizable Jewish community living in Damascus and so there were a lot of synagogues there. And so when persecution erupted in Jerusalem, a large number of Jewish Christians sought refuge there in Damascus. And so back to our story. And so the high priest approves of Saul's request and he immediately leaves Jerusalem for Damascus to raid the city for Christians. Look at verse 3. Now, as he, that is Paul and his entourage, went on his way, he approached Damascus um, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and so Saul is not far from Damascus when a blinding light appears overwhelms him and knocks him to the ground what's interesting about Saul's reaction is that he reacts in the same way people react when they encounter um, a, a manifestation of God's presence. In other words, if you remember, if you look um, throughout scripture, whenever someone encounters God, whenever God manifests himself to someone, they respond in a similar way. They are afraid, they are confused, and they um, have this reaction of survival. And that's what's happening here with Saul. So moments later, as Saul lies on the ground, someone speaks to him. Look at verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The reason Saul persecuted the church 
the early church was because he thought he was doing God's work. He thought he was serving God by trying to stamp out the Christian movement. But here in this verse, verse 4, the true nature of his actions are exposed. That by persecuting Christians, he was actually persecuting God himself. His rampant persecution of Christians was directly against God. And so Saul is very much aware that he's having some sort of supernatural experience. He's also aware that the voice he's hearing is from a person. And so Saul responds to the question with a counter question intended to find out who's behind the voice. Look at verse five. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so Saul gets what he asks for. He asks for the voice to identify who they are. And there's no way he was expecting this. But he finds out that the voice speaking from this blinding light is Jesus, is the crucified, risen and exalted Jesus himself. And so what happens next? Jesus then instructs Saul to go into Damascus and when he gets there to wait for further instructions. Um, Saul was not traveling alone. He was with an entourage. And so how did his entourage respond to this supernatural encounter? Look at verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And so Saul's entourage had a totally diff different experience to him. While Saul saw um, a blinding light and interacted with Jesus, they heard a voice but didn't see anything else. So what did they do? How did they react? They stood there speechless, watching their fearless leader pinned to the ground and talking to someone they couldn't see. Although they didn't have a clue what was going on and what was happening to Saul, um, and they were probably weirded out by everything going on. They didn't leave Saul. They didn't abandon him. They helped him to his feet and led him by the hand into the city. Look at verse 9. And for three days, he, that is Saul, was without sight and neither ate nor drank. While Saul is in Damascus, shaken by the experience, Jesus makes another appearance, this time not to Saul, but he appears to a Christian in Damascus named Ananias and he instructs him to go and find Saul. Ananias, knowing about Saul and his reputation for the persecution of Christians, is uncomfortable with this task. Why? Look at verse 13. Um, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. In other words, Ananias <laughs> is very much like, no way. Um, there's no way I'm going to go and do that. Basically, Jesus is saying, telling him to go and find the person that 
has been on a rampage um, to persecute him and other Christians. He hears this and he's like, no way. There is no way I am doing that. Um, but <laughs> um, if you look at verse 15, um, he's of course, Ananias is reluctant, but verse 15 and 16 tells us that um, Jesus comes back and tells him to go. And then Jesus explains um, that Saul has been saved and that he's going to use him to reach people and um, further his gospel. And so um, Ananias ends up going and obeying Jesus, even if it, even though it didn't make sense. Um, and then when he gets to where Saul is, he prays for him. And after praying for Saul, look at verse 18 and 19. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And after this, um, verses um, 19 through to 22 lets us know that Saul wastes no time. He expresses his devotion and commitment to Jesus through baptism. And then he spends several days with the Christians in Damascus. And at once what he does is he begins to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. And everyone who heard him were amazed by such a radical conversion. All right. So Saul became one of the most important figures in the history of our Christian faith. Paul lived fully for Jesus. His life was for Jesus and all about Jesus. And in the coming weeks, we are going to see how God used him in great ways. OK, so that was the conversion story of so, question, who's read this story before? Who knows this story? All right, most of you, most of you. It has to be, and I'm sure you agree with me, has to be one of the greatest stories in history. We've all heard it countless of times. Because it's, you know, it's it's well known and it's one of the most loved stories of Christianity. But let me be honest with you guys. This week, and I spend about 10 to 15 hours a week. It all depends. Um, just looking at the passage, studying it trying to understand it and so most week I, I spend about 10 to 15 weeks as I studied and thought long and hard about how to apply it to our life that is how to apply this well-known story um, to 21st century Christians living in San Diego I struggled I struggled with how this epic story speaks now to us. And I struggled not because 
of a lack of content. There's a lot here for us as believers um, to glean. There is so much, many lessons we can learn, okay? There, there are lessons like, man, the, 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 the courage of Ananias to obey, you know, Jesus, even though it didn't make sense. There's so much here, okay? It wasn't that. It wasn't a lack of content. And it wasn't because of indecisiveness. As a preacher, as a pastor, um, one of our biggest struggles each week is what to highlight from the many options available when it comes to application. Okay, um, it's 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 crazy. Every week I have a passage, and I'm like, okay, there are there's so much going on here. What do I need to focus on? How do I need to apply this? Because I don't, I'm not going to have the time. I have like 35, 40 minutes and I just don't have the time. And so that wasn't really my struggle this time. For a long time, I couldn't really put my finger on why I struggled so much with application. I couldn't work it out. And then late Saturday night, it finally dawned on me. My struggle with application had to do with this subtle desire within me to bring something new. I wanted to discover something I'd never seen in this passage before. Something that would have you guys say, wow, in all my years reading this story, I've never seen this before. And my intentions were legit. They're good. After all, God's word is deep and wide and there's always something new for us to see in any given verse or chapter or story. How many times have you read a verse for like the 10th or 20th time and you see something different in it that you never saw before? Okay, it's legit. And this is all good. For us to look at a passage and say, God, like, what, what, what thing haven't I seen before? Show me something else. Show me something. This is all good, but it becomes a problem when our pursuit of something new causes us to devalue what's essential. That is... When our pursuit of something new causes us to miss the main point of the passage. You see, my problem wasn't the pursuit of something new, but the problem was in seeking to discover something new from this incredible story, I was losing my appreciation and awe for the essential truth of this story. And that is God's amazing grace and his power to save. 
In other words, as I looked for something new from this story, I was losing sight of the most valuable thing about this story. And that was God's amazing grace towards sinners and his power to save them. It broke my heart to realize that I worked hard to discover something new, this new truth, this new revelation, this new something. When the old was enough. Anything new I find and share would have given us an aha moment, but it should never overshadow the awesome, sufficient truth of the gospel. That is God's amazing grace and his power to save. On Monday, check this story out. On Monday, my family and I went to the zoo, one of like 10 local zoos in our area there are a lot of zoos here and we decided to go to this particular zoo I can't remember the name because they were I think the only zoo that um, had a white tiger um, a Bengal white tiger um, and we decided to go there because of the white tiger of course you want to go there because of the white tiger the main attraction and so we went and we finally got to the place where, you know, after walking this zoo and checking out other animals, we finally went to this place where the white tiger was. And so we went in and the white tiger was sleeping. <laughs> we were like, oh, you, you better wake up. We have paid money and we have drove far to come and see you and you and so I'm like knocking <laughs> I was literally knocking on the window wake up wake up white tiger is sleeping and so because we wanted to make good use of our money we decided to wait around to see if the white tiger would wake up because apparently it was lunchtime and he was having its his nap and so we waited around and then Eleanor would go and check um, to see if the white tiger had done anything. And as we waited, Eleanor went to check and she said, guys, come, the white tiger, he's moving. And so I rushed over there with the kids and we saw the white tiger. The white tiger moved his arm to the left. And we were like, wow, this is awesome. Oh my gosh, the white tiger has stood up and the white tiger is peeing and the white tiger <laughs> that is true story <laughs> actually it was the other tiger but anyway and, and you know everything the white tiger did we was amazed by it we were in awe of every move everything this white tiger did we were in awe of it as we think about the gospel as we think about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ like how we reacted in amazement at every move this white tiger made that's how I want to react every time I hear and read about a story 
of God's amazing grace and power to save. I want to be in awe and respond with amazement and joy every time I hear and read stories of salvation, every time I hear about how God, the author of salvation, saves a sinner, I want to be in awe. I want to experience and rediscover the joy of salvation every time I hear of stories of salvation. What about you? Have you lost your awe of the gospel? When you hear stories of salvation like this one, like Saul's incredible conversion, does it move you to rejoice? Or have stories of salvation become so familiar to you, they no longer move you, they no longer excite you? Are you content with the gospel? Is who God is and what he's done enough? Or, like me, has your pursuit of something new, something fresh, a new revelation weakened your love and appreciation for God's amazing grace and his power to save? What about your story? What about what God has done for you because of Jesus? This is one of my problems. Every time I read a story like Saul and how he was this um, persecuting Christian and how God um, powerfully saved him. Yes, his story is unique and he played a unique role in God's um, overall redemptive story. He really did. But I read his story and I think, eh, my story is boring. Yeah, God saved me. Yeah, I did some bad things, but man, I wished I had a testimony like Saul. And what I begin to do is become less appreciative of God's work in my life. When you're reminded of God's grace in your life, how does it impact you? Has the power of the gospel in your life become so familiar to you, it no longer moves you or excites you? There was this one time when Jesus sent out his disciples. Um, he sent them out two by two ahead of him to go and share the gospel. And he empowered them to do these miracles. And so after his disciples had gone out and they came back, they returned from this mission with excitement about what they were able to see and do. They were excited and came back to Jesus and said, Jesus, guess what? Even demons are subject to us and we were able to heal people and do miracles and all of these things. Jesus hears that and this is how he responds in Luke chapter 10 18 
onwards and don't go there but put this down but this is how Jesus responds he said and he said to them I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven behold I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you this is it this is where I'm getting at nevertheless do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Did you guys see that? They've just come back and they're like, Jesus, we're doing all these things. And Jesus is like, yeah, absolutely you should. But be more excited about the fact that you are saved. Do you find joy in the reality that your name is written in heaven? Do you find joy that you are saved? Is the fact that you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus enough for you? Or has the simple but life-changing gospel message become ordinary to you to the point where you view it as just the gospel. This is my prayer for me. This is my prayer for you. That we may rediscover the awe and wonder of the life-changing power of the gospel. And so if you've lost your awe of the gospel, um, the question is, how do you, re how do you rediscover it? And it's not complicated. Um, here are just two ways you can rediscover the awe and wonder of the gospel. The first is to remember. The first is to reflect and remember what God has done for you. I've been reading the Old Testament recently and it's been awesome reading the history of Israel and how God rescued them from Egypt and after God rescued them from Egypt you would know you will know that in Joshua and Judges and um, the books that came after they rescue in Egypt that God keeps on saying to them that I am your God who rescued you from Egypt you see that phrase over and over and over again. Don't forget your God who rescued you from Egypt. What's happening there? God's talking about the importance of remembering what God has done. And so how do you rediscover the awe and wonder of the gospel? Remember. One author, William Smith, says this. And listen to me clearly. Spend some time remembering how badly lost you were. Think back to the time before you knew Jesus and how kind he was in searching you out. Think back to your lostness this morning when you may have criticized someone or picked a fight with your roommate or um, swore at another driver or thought lustful thoughts. Then consider how God how good Jesus is to keep searching for you, knowing he will find you. When you meditate on the two realities of being lost and having a savior who doesn't quit until he finds you, you can't help but experience joy. 
And so the first way to rediscover joy of our salvation is to remember. The second way is to ask God to restore the joy of your salvation. This is a prayer. God will answer. If you want to know God's will for you, one of the clearest, most certain um, um, purposes of God for you is to re- is to is to um, th- have to have joy in your salvation, the fact that you've been saved. And so asking God to restore the joy of your salvation isn't a prayer. You need to be concerned as to whether God should answer it or not. God will absolutely answer it. And so pray daily that God, I would have joy knowing that I am saved. Pray for that. King's Cross Church, may we never be bored of the fact that the righteous and holy God has lavished his mercy and grace through Jesus Christ on sinners who deserve his punishment. May we never, may we always rejoice every time we hear the gospel, no matter how many times we've heard it. And may we never tire of hearing this good news that Jesus Christ really does save sinners and he has secured our salvation. And that's the big thing. That is the main theme of Saul's story, conversion story, that it communicates to us that God is a God whose grace is amazing enough to save the most wretched sinners. And his story is our story that we have experienced God's amazing grace and he has saved us. And so King's Cross Church, let us have the fires of our heart continually stoked with this good news so that we may faithful we may be faithful witnesses who speak and live in light of what God has done by his grace and for his glory let's pray thank you god for this reminder god my heart is always prone to wander away from the good news of the gospel and to find and experience something else, something else that is new, something else that is fresh. But the gospel is enough. What you have done for us in Christ is enough. May we cherish it, may we value it, may we treasure Christ. You are the only one that can do that. So I pray this week from today that you would do that in all of our hearts, Lord. That we would have joy knowing who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen.